Lumpocha used to say, when you're cleaning the monastery, <coughs> don't look on it that you're doing a favor for somebody. It's an opportunity to clean up your own mind as you're doing the external cleaning of the monastery. There's a lot of uh, research done nowadays on some of the different causes for stress in modern living. One of them is the pressure and the complication caused by increased accumulation of stuff, possessions that people experience nowadays. Houses and apartments full of, full of things that they must look after, sort out, tidy. And also busy schedules to do with work and social activity. All of this has an effect on the mind. Perhaps it contributes to a sense of a cluttered mind full of different thoughts, distracting thoughts, feeling more scattered, more overrun by the many different things that we have to look after and deal with. So part of the monastic training is dealing with this directly. And when we become monks, we develop the perception of living simply, being content with little, and not seeking to accumulate a lot of wealth or possessions. <coughs> This can be a great joy after a while when we're practicing and we appreciate the simplicity of the life. We can see how easy it is to look after and sort out the few possessions we do have. And most monks, forest monks, tend to find it beneficial to live very simply keep their dwelling place tidy and help to keep the monastic buildings tidy and well organized. It does seem to reflect the state of mind. If you only have a limited number of possessions then you can be fully aware of what you've got and where it is. One of the qualities of mindfulness is not forgetting. So when you only have a few possessions, you tend not to forget where they are. This is a constant training. Every day we are practicing mindfulness. Partly that means mindful of our 
duties within the monastic community, mindful of the place we're at, keeping our kuti clean and tidy and well-maintained, helping to maintain the buildings and the grounds of the monastery as well. Just general mindfulness and clear comprehension brings you to be aware of your surroundings more. This helps us to direct our attention back to the mind. <clears throat> you might say part of meditation practice is cleaning up the mind, particularly dealing with the five hindrances. <coughs> the most simple, direct way to deal with the hindrances is to develop mindfulness of your meditation object. So mindfulness directed to the in and out breath. And when you're paying attention to the breath, the different mental hindrances will subside because you're paying attention to the breath and not to the hindrances. But then it's normal or natural that sometimes the hindrances are very stubborn and we can become obsessed with certain hindrances and their objects. <clears throat> and it seems like whatever efforts we put into bringing up mindfulness directed to our meditation object, we're not successful yet. And the hindrances seem to be winning, or a hindrance seems to be winning. So we also have to use wise reflection, yoni somana sikara, to help develop some wisdom, some understanding what's feeding the hindrance and how we may be able to uh, let it go, either through replacing it with something better or reflecting on its impermanence or bringing up a heightened sense of shame Fear of consequences of wrongdoing, hiriyotapa, is another way. And developing the samana sanya can help to deal with hindrances. So we actually, with the perception of being a samana, becomes various values that we hold dear and see as important in our life. So the value of, say, harmlessness and peace helps us to deal with mental hindrances rooted in anger and ill will or hatred. Or the perception of being a celibate samana helps us to develop shame around sexual desire that may be coming up to overtake the mind. And developing the samana sanya, the perception of being a san samana, can often help to counter hindrances. Otherwise, we might have to work at bringing up the opposite of whatever the hindrance is. So with sensual desire always coming back to the body, when we have sensual desire taking over, it's usually based around 
our body and the pleasure and the delight in having a human body <coughs> or else directing attention to other people's bodies whether imaginary or based on memories or people we are seeing and encountering in our daily life. So we have to learn how to wisely bring up wise reflection directed to the body to help see the unattractive side of the body to counter the obsession with the attractive side. This requires practice and training just like any other part of the practice overall. Training with both mindfulness and then investigation. Just learning to have that skill ready when needed. There'll be the hindrances tend to come up due to different causes and conditions. Sometimes it's to do with our physical state, sometimes to do with external stimulation. But we have to have these skills ready so that when say lustful desire or sensual desire comes up in the mind, we can then turn to wisely reflect on the body to counter it, just as the mind likes to obsess with what it finds attractive and beautiful, then we turn to look at what is unattractive and unpleasant about the human body. And done skillfully, this is to help neutralize a hindrance. We're not aiming to develop a particular bias against the human form or bias against those physical forms that we find attractive. But we're trying to balance up the way we look at things by using wise reflection. So just as we might notice the beauty in a form, then we quickly can turn to look at the unattractive side so that mind doesn't become obsessed. If we're not obsessed, then we can put something down, we can let it go, which is our aim as we're practicing meditation. Same way with uh, ill will or even hatred. You're bringing, you're bringing up the opposites of focusing on goodwill, focusing on what you have in common with the person, you have aversion to a person, you're focusing on the good in them and the desire for them to be good and develop in a good way. Again, to neutralize your obsession with irritation, aversion or even hatred. In the same way, you're not trying to paint her over overly rosy picture of a person or a situation that maybe has brought up stimulated aversion for you. You're not trying to cover cover over the truth or give yourself a false, positive, glossy, rosy view of the world or that person. But you're balancing the obsession with the negative, the obsession with their faults or what they've done that you didn't like or didn't agree with. 
and bringing the mind back to neutrality so that we can deepen our practice of samadhi and overcome the hindrance. With dullness and drowsiness, then again the mind can habitually become used to becoming drowsy, even enjoying that state of dullness where it doesn't have to put forth much effort. So to counter that, you're bringing up the perception of wakefulness, maybe the perception of light, putting effort into the posture, finding skillful ways to wake yourself up, to counter and replace the attachment to the state of dullness, drowsiness. With restlessness, agitation, a lot that is often associated with things we still have to do, the duties we've got waiting for us, work that has to be done, any kind of activity we have planned, we love to think about it, and it becomes a hindrance again when it's obsessing the mind. bringing up the perception of and the reflection on impermanence can help to counter that. Just seeing how our thoughts about the future and our plans and the activities we're going over in our mind are still very uncertain. Things will not necessarily work out as we plan. Different factors come up, change our plans, change conditions. So development of wise reflection on impermanence is a useful counter to the hindrances. All these different skillful means, these are things we have to practice training. And if we really put our heart into the training, like any part of the training, you will get better at it. We have to give give our mind that chance, really use our meditation periods, sitting and walking, to develop this, this skill of wise reflection, and always with the aim to overcome the hindrances. And how do you define or, or recognize wise reflection? Well, the result of it should be that your the hindrances in the mind should be, be becoming reduced or even completely abandoned during that period. (coughs) This is the purpose of wise reflection. It's not just aimlessly trying to think about Dhamma, letting the mind wander from subject to subject, thought to thought. There's a purpose in, in mind, there's a goal. And you're training that ability to pay attention both to the present moment, so with mindfulness, but also maintaining the theme that you've picked. So if it's a a picking a theme to replace a hindrance, or a theme to undermine it by contemplating impermanence, and so on, you have to keep, keep at it. 
and where you found success before, you can find success again and keep developing that skill so you get better at it. As bhikkhus living in the forest, we have a lot of quiet time to be with ourselves or even when we're with the community just to quietly continue our practice but it's up to us to use our time to train the mind and see that every part of the day every part of our life is part of the training the opportunity to develop mindfulness and wisdom is always there and these two qualities will combine together to look after the mind and begin the process of purification. If you look on your practice of meditation with the right attitude, you never have to feel that you're wasting your time or that it, there's some impossible mental state or block that makes it that you can't meditate. You, everything presents itself as an opportunity to learn from to cultivate both mindfulness and this ability to wisely reflect. You're always looking to see how you can get a more objective angle on the hindrances, get a sense of distance between the mind that knows the hindrance and the hindrance itself. So you're gradually reducing that sense of personal identification giving it less importance in your mind, so then it won't obsess the mind so much. Lampucha also used to say how we all tend to seek out states of pleasure and bliss and peace. Always seeking that as part of our practice. <clears throat> but we really have to learn how to learn from the dukkha when the mind is disturbed. And not always to be running away from the dukkha and trying to find the, the bliss or the peace but also see where you can learn from the dukkha really the peace comes from understanding that happiness when attached to also causes suffering pain and unpleasant things cause suffering when we attach but pleasure and happiness also causes suffering when we attach 
It's something we have to keep reminding ourselves over and over again. Because our tendency is just to look for whatever will bring us a sense of pleasure and satisfaction in the moment, even during our meditation. And it's not wrong to experience pleasure, and it will definitely happen, because as your mind becomes more calm, pity and sukha arise quite naturally for shorter or longer periods. But even that, we tend to grasp onto, looking for, looking at it as some kind of result from our practice. And if, if it fades, or we don't get it, then we tend to look on our practice as not going well. And we become dissatisfied very easily. Just developing this skill of being more mindful, equanimous, and then wisely reflecting on what's going on. And seeing that in the end, sukha and dukkha are of equal value. They're two parts of the same thing. They both form the basis for self-identity. We attach to them. We want the the sukha and we try to get rid of the dukkha. So our mind is never peaceful, never, never at ease. But the more we understand what's going on, the process, the more we can see these are just two conditions of mind. Then we can find some real ease inside. So I have a bit of a throat condition still, so I won't say much more than that tonight. Just encourage you to carry on with your practice. <laughs>